I'm Sarah. And I'm Esme. And this is One with the Prairie. Where we Gen Zers take on prairie life. Like churning butter. Like salting our meats before winter. Like baling hay. Like bringing the cows home after dark. And finally, like having a really hard life without indoor plumbing that we will probably never understand. So welcome to One with the Prairie, where we hashtag bring the bonnet back. We'll prairie until the cows come home. Welcome to our beer episode. Yay. How are you doing, Esme? I am good. I'm so excited to be back at it because it's been a while since our last one. And this one is Mm -hmm. an especially exciting episode because we both love beer. And we have a lot of, uh, or we've had a lot of beer beer beer-related experiences together. Exactly. Who doesn't love alcohol? (laughs) It's a good time. What have you been up to, Sarah, in your your lovely life? Good question. Let's see. The most prairie-related things I've been doing are all cooking-related. Okay, that's pretty um, solid. Recently, one of my biggest accomplishments of the week was I hard-boiled and peeled 60 eggs. That, that is was pretty exciting. Wild. <laughs> and, and, and awesome. I perfected my farmer salad, which is the salad that I'm making at the restaurant, um, which consists of a lot of the greens, that the mixed greens that we get from the farm, mm-hmm. as well as any like shaved veggies or produce that we get. So right now it's been cherry tomatoes, summer squash, cucumbers, radishes, Ooh, and tasty. yeah, some other, some feta cheese, Ooh. candied walnuts, pickled red onions. Oh, pickled red onions. Okay, you know, yeah. as you were saying that now, I've just realized that in all of the Little House books, they never mm-hmm. mention that they eat salad, like salad as in, as in the way we eat it, I don't think. Like, how did they get their vegetable intake? I don't remember. That's a good point. I have no idea. I feel like they eat a lot of potatoes. We'll come at you with that answer in our next episode. (laughs) (laughs) We'll dive more into their nutritional value of the the food that they're eating. Yeah, because I feel like they never really had, they never really make a bowl of salad and eat it. I I feel like that was just not part of their diet, but we'll have to double check on that. Right. They definitely eat fruit. Like they eat watermelon and stuff, but salad? I don't know about salad. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, that's very anyway, cool. Very what nice. What up to? Um, Thanks. I'm just trying to build a planter box right now, and I cool. I went to Home Depot and I got some like nice planks of wood, and okay. it's going to be kind of redwood colored, and it's like oh, three tiered, so it it's kind of like a staircase. And it's, oh, that's really fun. Yeah, and it's kind of small and cute, and it sits kind of right outside a door, so it should be nice. Um, okay. In, 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 what type in of plants apartment. are you going to put in it? I don't know. I'm thinking of just colorful flowers right now because okay. I have an indoor herb garden right now and I'm thinking of keeping the herbs indoors. Maybe I'll put mint there because that's like an outdoor mm. herb. But I'm thinking like colorful kind of um, flowers just for like, you know, the aesthetic that you I don't have. You should a Oh yeah, Sarah loves I nasturtium. Love nasturtium. <laughs> one time we walked around. Uh, one time we walked around Berkeley just eating nasturtium from random it's like great. strangers' yards. Honestly, so great! What a peppery, nice flower. Absolutely beautiful, <laughs> lovely, and edible. But also, how do you know when you're eating like random flowers that like dogs haven't peed on them? Just it's- get the ones that are far enough in or high enough up that like a dog would not feasibly be able to pee on it i don't trust that though like can't their stream have quite a trajectory well <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't trust. you gotta take it all in check you gotta keep it all in check uh, anyway, that was a good memory that was i missed that memory. um okay yeah. okay anyway moving on because we're trying to get it get, get this episode into tight 30 minutes which we think tight we 30. can do mm-hmm. oh since this is the beer episode sarah what is the beer that you are currently drinking? 
Ooh, good question. My current beer of choice is a Sloop Juice Bomb IPA. Uh, goes down like juice. It's so good. <laughs> is it? Um, is it local? Where does it come from? Oh, that's a good question. I'm actually not sure. Uh, yeah, I have absolutely no idea. But I know that we have it at the restaurant, and so okay. after the service is over and everybody's cleaning up, we all just get a thing of sloop and... It goes down and it's great. It's I'm time. actually going to look this up right now because I'm curious. I eat a lot where of sloop. Drink, drink, duh. <laughs> sloop juice bomb, juicy hazy flagship IPA. I mean, it where sounds it really good. We love hazy IPAs. A grapefruit hazy, hazy IPA, IPA is really good too. Um, um, let's see. Well, they. It seems like they have some really cool like can art. Um, where do they come from? I need to know this. I'm curious about. Um. Okay, founded in 2011, Hudson Valley. Okay. Where is Hudson Valley? Uh, see, Hudson Valley is where I live, so it's local. Oh, to, oh it's local. Yeah. Oh, yeah. local oh, beer right. supporting. Oh, I love that. I love like finding local breweries. Actually, my dad's um, or for Father's Day, I got my dad um, a local beer from Santa Cruz, and it's called Sandals <laughs> and Socks. And the picture has oh. a picture of like a man's feet with sandals, and then like also socks, which is my dad's like constant attire. <laughs> And that was actually really good. I think it was also an IPA, so I was excited about that. Oh, I love an IPA. What have you been drinking, Esme? Oh, well, as you know, I love beer so much. And I have been (laughs) drinking a lot of Sierra Nevada. And then I also just, right now, my absolute favorite beer is Deschutes um, beer. And the specific, what's the specific type again? We drank it together. Um, Deschutes. uh, Oh, oh, I could not tell you, honestly. It's it's so good. I think it's like the, oh, it's like an ale. Um... Oh, man. What is it called? Mirror Pond Pale Ale. It's so good. Mirror Pond Pale Ale. Day shoot. You can get that anywhere, really. It's so good. Um, and actually, that reminds me, I wanted to tell you a story of how the, um, I think you know the story, but just in case you haven't heard it, <laughs> how my love of beer began. Mm. So, um, as you know, my dad's German. And um, so when I was, um, I don't know, young, I don't remember the mm-hmm. age. Um, uh-huh. We were at a restaurant, and my dad had ordered a Guinness beer, and okay. I had ordered a hot chocolate. And then my dad's <laughs> my dad's Guinness beer came before my hot chocolate, and I must have been pretty young. And my dad, my dad was like, "Oh, like that's your hot chocolate." And and you know how Guinness has a very dark brown color, and it just looked yeah. like hot chocolate to me. So I took a sip, and then I was obviously disgusted at that age, <laughs> and I was like, oh, "I'm never drinking that again. That is just horrible." And now I just absolutely love beer, and I love everything everything about the process of making beer, and just like trying new beers, finding craft breweries. It's so fun. So um, wow, yeah, <laughs> wow, really coming full circle. How times have changed. Your taste buds are so different. I'm sure now. I know. <laughs> and then oh. you and I have a lot of good memories drinking beer while in quarantine together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Well, first of all, not only did we drink a lot of beer in quarantine, we did. It was best. so much to the extent where we, <laughs> your entire house probably thought you we were alcoholics. <laughs> that was like a lot because we drank beer every day because we would go and like exercise and like a nice refreshing beer is so nice, like mm-hmm. it's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we made that whole adventure to get Pliny the Elder. Where was that? Up in a uh, Russian River. Yeah, Russian River. We went to with our roommates. We went. Um, to like Pliny the Elder during quarantine Uh um but it was like a nice like very safe process and we got like some some cans of like Pliny for president and stuff and and um then we went Pliny the Younger I think we got yeah Pliny the Younger (laughs) and then we went and sat by like the side of a (laughs) dirt road thing or dirt path (laughs) and we drink 
it and like my- to try to have a really nice picnic <laughs> in like the middle of a hundred degree heat. It was in- very odd. <laughs> It was very weird. But the beer was great. Anytime, that was a good day. Anytime you have, like, cold, refreshing beer, it doesn't even matter. It'll refresh you. It'll make the day better. It's great. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's what we're here for. Yeah. And now yeah. we have to discuss what role beer played in the lives of prairie people, mm-hmm. because that is actually a very interesting thing. But first, before we get there, we'll quickly answer our listener questions this week. We chose two this week, and then the last, the next two will be next week. So what mm-hmm. was your listener question? So my listener question comes from Shreya in Yuba City, California, and she asks, so what exactly is a prairie? Shreya, this is a great question. I feel like I've been asking myself this question at the same time. What do I, what, what's my conception of a prairie? Um, well, when I think of prairie, the first thing I don't think of is like anything mountainous, anything foresty, anything with trees. Prairie actually comes from the French word for meadow, and that's literally what prairie is. So... Honestly, think like rolling hills, buffalo, a lowland area that mainly consists of wildflowers, plants, and grasses, and not really any trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the U.S., it's safe to say that that happens mainly around in the Great Plains. So like parts of North and South Dakota, um, or classic, classically think of Kansas with a lot of buffalo and a lot mm-hmm. of herds, uh, herds of buffalo and wild bison. And so that's kind of how I imagine like... Little House on the Prairie to just be sat in there in this, like, very, <laughs> you can see everything, the entire horizon kind of vibe. So, yeah. Um, okay. So, what was your prairie question? Oh, yes. Okay. So, my prairie question was, how many different kinds of yeast can make different kinds of beer? And this question came from Priya, mm-hmm. also in Yuba City, California, which is really strange. Are you from the same city? Huh. What a coincidence. We'll have to ask our listeners. And <laughs> we'd love to hear more about you guys. Yeah. Um, okay. So, to answer your question, Priya, um, there are actually only two types of yeast used to make beer. There's one for ale and there's one for lager. And then within these types of yeast, you can get, like, liquid yeast or dry yeast, but the actual differentiation is between ale and lager, which are actually the two categories of beer. And ale um, uses top fermenting um, yeast. It's called ale yeast, and that kind of um, yeast rises to the surface during the fermentation process, and that makes for like a thicker head. Um, And lager yeast is bottom fermenting yeast, and so that doesn't create as much foam on top. And that's basically the difference between an ale and a, and a lager is this yeast, and the yeast changes the flavor of these beers. And then there's also, like, a third somewhat category for, like, wild and sour ales that use a different kind of, um, uh, a different kind of yeast um, mm-hmm. that is, like, unique. But generally, the way that you distinguish beer is, is it a, an ale or is it a lager? Um, Interesting. Yeah. So that is a good segue into the fact that Sarah and I created our own beer when we were in quarantine together. This so is true. And that we was like... We make our own beer. Oh, it was such a fun process. That's kind of wild. <laughs> I can't believe we did that. How, did, how did it start, Sarah? What did we do first? So our beer project consisted of us trying to figure out... Okay, all in all, all in all, it was a probably a two-month process when we first started making it to when we finished bottling and we're actually able to open a bottle and try it. Um, we wanted to get a beer kit from someplace local in Berkeley, California, so we got it from Oak Barrel Winecraft, um, and we got a Hefeweizen beer kit, which is a type of German wheat beer that comes from Bavaria, where the yeast is suspended in the beer and it gives it a cloudy appearance. I learned this oh, the first I didn't time know that. <laughs> mm-hmm, because. 
um, as my dad, Reiner, who is German, uh, <laughs> had gotten us Hefeweizen into, you know, kind of try it out and make sure that we like it. And when you pour it, he said, you have to swirl it around so that you can pick up the yeast on the bottom to get that cloudy appearance. <laughs> and he yelled at me a couple of times. Thanks. Um, so Seems I had accurate. absolutely no idea that we had to do that. Yeah, that sounds about right. But our process yeah. was long. It was very long. So <clears throat> our first day, we had to get make sure we had all the materials. So a lot of the materials that it consisted of was various buckets of different sizes, pots for boiling water mm-hmm. and keeping yeah. everything sterile. We got sanitizing solution for the materials and the bottles and the hydrometer and anything that would touch the beer, bottles and caps, the... Um, Pressure to actually, like, put the caps on the bottles. Mm-hmm. A water thermometer, different tubes. So, first we had to assemble all these materials. And then our process was to first create and add the grains, suspend, suspend the grains, and let them seep in the water. So, we wanted to bring that solution to a boil. And then after we did that, we removed that solution from heat and added and in, dissolved into our dry, malt, our dry malt extract. And this mm-hmm. became, is known as our wort. Um, so this was all on our first day. And then still on that first day, we brought the wort to an aggressive steady boil and added our bittering hops. Mm -hmm. So this is part for flavor. Um, and then later we added hops in after an hour's worth of boiling in order to add aroma. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately this first day was a lot of different liquids, adding the malt, adding the grains to make sure that we're getting the original flavor, um, and the hops and doing that for like on and off for about an hour or so. And then after that boiling process, we removed the wort from the heat and tried to cool it down as quickly as possible. So I remember taking all of the ice out oh, yeah. of the freezer, <laughs> sticking it in the, um, the sink, creating a water bath and trying to like cool down all this liquid. Um, and you can also do that by, remember we combined the wort with colder liquid in order to reach an ultimate five gallons of liquid, five mm-hmm. gallons of beer that we were brewing. Um, to reach an ideal temperature where it wasn't too cold and it wasn't too hot. It was a great temperature for, you know, the yeast to sit and to start doing its thing. Yeah. So it took us about a day and then we put it in this huge bucket um, and just let it sit around like in, at room temperature in the kitchen for about three weeks. We did <laughs> have really this short weird process. siphon. It was the opposite of short, <laughs> if anything, but short. And I remember because we had this siphon that we had put in it. And we were constantly checking it for activity because the way that you can measure the activity was to see if there was little bubbles coming out to see that, okay, there's some carbon dioxide coming out. Things are happening. Mm-hmm. Like stuff is going on inside that bucket. Mm-hmm. But we were sitting there and waiting and just watching mm-hmm. it for three days and nothing was happening. Do you remember this? And it was just like, what is going yeah. on inside there? So we would have to like take a peep inside and, uh, yeah, slightly <laughs> discouraging. <laughs> and one, one interesting part of the process is that we, so not only did we not see the right carbonation amount, mm-hmm. but at the end when you're about ready to bottle, you put right. in priming sugar. And that's basically right, the yeah. last sugar that the yeast has to eat. So that'll create the right amount of carbonation for like that sish when you open the bottle. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. for some reason, when we put the priming sugar in, something didn't go correctly. And so now mm-hmm. our priming sugar didn't perfectly like, um, it, it was different amounts in every bottle. Um, and so now when we open these bottles of beer that we made, each one has like a different amount of carbonation, which is kind of, kind of sad, but overall, I think in general, it worked out well. Yeah. Yeah. So we added the, what the priming sugar came in about three weeks after we created the wort solution. Mm-hmm. And then we spent a couple of hours just bottling. doing this whole bottling process <laughs> where we're using this tube to like suction out the beer and making sure that we don't get like kind of the gross bits and bottling it and 
capping everything. Yeah. And then we let that sit for another two, three weeks. And I remember just tra- testing it and trying it every, like, couple of days. Being like, oh, is it any better today? <laughs> Have we gotten to that point yet? But, oh, that's is the best part. Yeah. The best part. One major disclaimer is Sarah and I did not have to go out and buy anything because my dad already had all this brewing equipment from his yeah. younger years. So we just got, him, got all the stuff down from the attic and did it all then. So, so if you're really considering doing this, I feel like you need to make at least a couple of batches to make yeah. it worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll, yeah. you'll get the kit, but you'll also need all of the other kind of equipment. But once you have it all, it right. obviously lasts forever. So if you're thinking of doing this, as long as you have three weeks to wait around for the beer <laughs> it's like the actual Which she proce- will definitely have yeah yeah definitely and the have. actual process doesn't take that long so i think it's totally worth it because how cool yeah. is it that your your friends can come over hopefully socially just drink beer that and you made beer. i know like, it's so super fun. sick it's so fun. super sick which leads us to well how what happened in 1873 and before and yeah, after what's going on? in terms of beer Did they drink beer? So I'll give a short history of this. um, Because it's kind of, it's pretty interesting. So basically, okay. So uh, in 1770, Americans consumed about three and a half gallons of alcohol per year. Which which is quite a lot. Um, And this all started when Europeans um, traveled to North America in the 1600s, and they were generally Mm -hmm. heavy drinkers. But because imported beer was expensive, the colonists um, would have fermented peach juice and apple cider or imported rum. Um, Ooh, that sounds good. <laughs> so they would drink. Many Americans would like start the day with a drink in 1770. Um, so mm-hmm. this is a hundred years prior to Little House. Um, and then uh, generally, when actually when German immigrants came to the United States, so Germans brought with them um, kind of knowledge of beer making. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, the Coors Brewing Company was founded in 1873 by German immigrants named Adolf Coors and Jacob Schuller, um, and they brought um, a Pilsner-style beer with them. Um, And so this led to, like, um, an increase in... um, in beer rather than this rum and this fermented peach and peach um, juice and apple cider. Um, and by 1873, which was the year um, that that these books are set in or around the time, mm-hmm. 4,000 breweries were operating in America. And this oh, wow. was mostly due to increased immigration from beer-making countries, industrialization, yeah. urbanization, rising wages, and technological achievements. So around this time, we would expect that people who were living on the prairie and, um, you know, Laura's family would be drinking beer. But mm-hmm. what the interesting... Oh, and I also uh, forgot to mention that... Um, in the 1820s, so this is kind of post the, this rum drinking era around the time, whiskey was the main drink that... that it, whiskey, whiskey, <laughs> whiskey. Because it was essentially cheaper than beer, wine, coffee, tea, or milk. It was 25 cents a gallon. So that, okay. um, along um, in 1820s, it took about um, 40 to 50 years before beer even became, you. you know, commonly a, a, a common thing. And wow. so this influx of beer led uh-huh. to saloons and we've all seen saloons in like uh-huh. movies and in pop- popular culture and definitely, you know it's, definitely right and yeah, yeah, yeah and so interestingly the first saloon was established in 1822 so this is obviously they sold whiskey this was around the time of whiskey and it started out as a place to just serve fur trappers who were okay. you know either i don't know what <laughs> cut that out <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, keep going. 
<clears throat> you laugh. So it Celine. makes me laugh. Sorry. <laughs> I love a whiskey sour. <laughs> Remember that time we made whiskey sours? We that was delicious. Okay. We are talking about it. Whiskey sours are so good. We had the whiskey, and then we had to foam the egg. Remember? And we got that, like, nice white foam from the egg, egg yolk? No, the egg white. That oh, was really delicious. good. That was our cocktail really making face. Okay. Yeah. So, the first saloon was in 1820. <laughs> the first saloon was in 1822 in Wyoming. And mm-hmm. at this time, saloons, beyond serving fur trappers, were mm-hmm. basically enticing patrons to come in with a free lunch, which would be a free lunch with a purchase of one drink. Okay. And so... This led to, like, saloons becoming more of an important cornerstone, and they, you know, early locations were more crude, but then they became more fancy as time passed, and owners cared about, like, what the inside of the saloon looked like, et cetera, et cetera. And this Uh led um, to this idea of a lady's entrance, which is something very interesting that I came across when doing Mm. this research. Um, Basically, for women, entering a a bar was a fearful prospect because they were, like, these manly, men-only places where, like, you know, women would not, would feel unsafe. And so that led to this idea of a lady's entrance, which was that ladies would enter from the back of the saloon. And the reason for this is that then they could, they would not be noticed when they were entering. They wouldn't have to walk Mm -hmm. through the bar area and they would be able to get to the part of the bar that they, you know, were supposed to be enjoying, which was the free lunch area. So they would come in for the lunch, which was in the eating area in the back and in the front was where the men would drink. But there is actually a saloon in lower Manhattan called McSorley's that began in that was basically founded in 1854 and the owner john mcsorley believed that it quote believed it was impossible for men to drink with tranquility in the presence of women so he absolutely so he banned ladies like absolutely ladies women he banned women and he wrote he had a sign on his store on his bar that said notice no back room in here for ladies so he didn't even have a ladies entrance so this is even going beyond the ladies entrance he had a male only bar so you think this would this wouldn't last too long right or at least hasn't lasted to this to the protest something going on like so we can drink too <laughs> i i we know so <laughs> basically this bar uh-huh. only allowed women to enter on june 25th 1970 so 19 19- what was so special about that date because that was the day that um the the city basically outlawed this like gendered uh, um nice. discrimination and so 1970 was the first year that this bar allowed women in, and 1994 wow. was the first time that a woman worked behind the bar at McSorley's. So wow. overall, that took us a long time. It's a very it interesting, very storied bar. It's the oldest yeah. bar in New York City, and oh, and I found it on Yelp, or I found mm-hmm. the a Yelp review, and mm-hmm. everyone seems to really enjoy going in here because apparently you can expect that nothing has changed and that there's all this great memorabilia. And I'll read you one of my favorite Yelp reviews that I read from Amber <laughs> D. Please it, do. It, it made me quite happy because it made me want to go there. I mean, I, and I like the chance to kind of just jump into history would be really cool. So yeah. Amber D says, 
Things you can expect that have not changed since McSorley's originally opened their doors in 1854. The only drink choice you have is light or dark. That beer recipe is the same. Walls covered with memorabilia that will make your dad's head spin. Sawdust on the floor. Cold cut sandwich options complete with raw onion and other pickled things to putridly mix with the scent of beer and make for a real winning evening breath. And wishbones on the back bar that promised soldiers of a second dinner when they came back from the war. That's sweet. And my other favorite Yelp review from Brandon S. is, McSorley's may be the most Irish establishment that ever existed, and that includes (laughs) Ireland. (laughs) <laughs> and that includes ireland guys probably never even been to ireland let's be real like come on but i think what you're getting at is that the relationship like women's relationship with beer and with saloons has mm-hmm. just changed a lot it absolutely um, has yeah in so in 1874 the women's christian temperance movement was founded and this was one of the largest women's organizations in the 19th century and it really stemmed from the concern that women had about with men's alcoholism and what it did to families so kind of this like dichotomy of okay the women and the home and family life and responsibility versus the Mm -hmm. whatever is going on in the saloon and I think their their main goal was to really ban the consumption of alcohol where women appeared before town saloons and they prayed and they urged saloon keepers to like close their saloons and like literally protest protested and I think like this uprising was really interesting and actually like the legislation was considered by Congress to to do things. And it always, I think, intrigues me when I think about the prohibition movement and, you know, what caused people to really want this to happen. Um, really thinking about these people were really thinking about the moral well-being mm-hmm. of the home versus the saloon. And what is it, mm-hmm. what does the saloon mean? Like spending a lot of their money, gambling, prostitution, things that kind of mm-hmm. cut at this feeling of home. Um But I think what's overall really interesting about the movement itself, the women's Christian temperance movement, is not just that they were necessarily um, successful in limiting drinking, but kind of how an organization could really use women's involvement and women's power and their voice to support causes that aren't necessarily considered traditional or related to the home. So I think that this really stemmed the growth of the women's suffragist movement and Mm -hmm. also anti-slavery movements. And I think that this trajectory is really interesting in thinking about okay what does woman's voice really mean now and so where does that go so wasn't um wasn't prohibition like a lot stemming from the fact that there was like a a lot of like protestantism or early like the, Mm -hmm. the earliest people that came to the united states from europe were protestants and they had like a lot of um, you know, certain ideas of like morality with drinking, morality right. with certain things. Because yeah. that's the interesting thing is that you can really see that in the books because, mm. I mean, at some point, Ma says, I think I wrote, oh yeah, the the quote is, um, oh, what does she say? Well, she calls it like the evil of drink and she doesn't want her children to be exposed to it. She doesn't want her husband to be exposed to it. And um, at one point in the book, Laura sees like these drunk men walking yeah. out of the saloon yeah. and she thinks it's really funny and she tells her parents about it and then ma uh-huh. says um goodness gracious laura how could you laugh at the drunken <laughs> men like she's just so <laughs> she thinks that they're so like rowdy and that that's just like immoral and why would you do that so and yeah. and that's around the time that the women's temperance movement began right interesting yeah yeah, yeah. and it's also cool because i think a lot about saloons and drinking is really stemming from like this evil is like generally lower class populations Mm -hmm. and so pa was trying really hard to like bring his family up to a respected class Mm -hmm. and i think that's what made it really hard was that because laura ingalls 
had so much contact with this lunar environment and this proximity to the space, mm-hmm. it kind of clashed with, in general, Pa's and the family's economic ability to really move them up and, like, for Pa to be able to protect them from the evils of this, mm-hmm. from, like, the lesser part of society. And it's, mm-hmm. like, the poverty of the Ingalls family coming into class with, like, the, their morality. And I think that that's a very interesting dichotomy that mm-hmm. we don't really necessarily see as much today. So what role did the women's um, temperance movement play in, like, ultimately Prohibition? Because what years did Prohibition occur? Uh, prohibition was, like, what, the 18, late 1800s? Oh, so it was around the same time. So this yeah, is, like, so a think, leading cause of... Mm-hmm. They okay. really stemmed the, the, um, the temperance movement and Prohibition. Uh, I'm not really sure how it goes in hand-in-hand with Carrie What's-Her-Face, the hatchet lady. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, who is she? Us, us building on our like U.S. history classes right now. Oh gosh, I remember oh, learning gosh. about like prohibition and all of that. It's just, I, I mean, there's just so much history that I want to know, like, and be able to yeah. recite. Um, and then my other question was, um, okay, so was this prohibition movement happening generally in the East, where there were big cities, or was it happening everywhere? Um, I think the concern was definitely or at least the Women's Christian Temperance Movement really stemmed and came out of the Midwest. It was super strong in the Midwest. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, but I definitely, in in the general prairie area, Mm -hmm. but I think it did gain traction in parts of the East Coast where there are a lot more cities. Um, So I think it it was a big mixture. And also, people in the Midwest and that were on the prairie lifestyle, I think had definitely stronger ideals of family life and morality because it was a lot more it was a lot less secular okay. um, than a city would have been. So do you know, that kind of comes into play. Do you know if um, Laura's mother was ever involved or anything? I don't think she was. Okay. Oh, very yeah. interesting. And now, what, we move into present day, <laughs> and everyone's having these quarantine happy hours, and <laughs> it's like, let's make a cocktail. And, I know. Just like we uh, did. Okay. I know. Our, our whiskey sours, our mojitos, margaritas. Yeah. yeah good stuff that's the interesting thing i was reading this article Mm -hmm. um on um in new york times about um can all it's called could all these quarantinis lead to drinking problems which is actually kind of of concerning sobering yeah and yeah apparently so alcohol sales rose 55 percent in march this year which is around the time that um that the coronavirus hit america and we were Mm. we were kind of going into quarantine and shelter in place um, yeah. and I guess like it's, it can lead, this kind of thing can lead to harmful drinking and isolation and people right. are getting more alcohol delivered and they're, you know, they're having more time to drink alcohol. Yeah. Um, so all of that is just, I mean, and, and then I was reading about, well, alcohol consumption has increased in the past, um, in, in times of war or in times of like financial stress during like mm-hmm. recessions, during like right. depressions, um, but this is like a very significant number, this like fifty five percent number. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's it's just all very interesting what role alcohol is playing in in our lives and how that's yeah. changed like within five months or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also, even just thinking about what that fifty five percent number is that how much of that is changing because of the way like where are we getting our alcohol from, right? With all these restaurants and bars closing down, people aren't buying alcohol in those places. So how much can we account for that being like, okay, we can't get it from there, so then we'll bring it home. Yeah. Or is it people really just like stockpiling just like they did with toilet paper and who knows and like 
hand sanitizer. Yeah. So I, it's like, it'll be interesting to see after all this is over how much we can attribute to change in consumption patterns or just change in overall, like, access. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which which kind of reminds me of of this other article that I read a long time ago, actually, but I've, uh-huh. I've just been remember, reminded of it, of um, how um, in the beginning of, like, quarantine um, yeah. in New York, a lot of, like, supermarkets were selling out of things, and people didn't want to go as far to supermarkets, and they wanted to go to, like, local cafes or local mm-hmm. wherever they were living. And so mm-hmm. cafes started to, like, buy, you know, soap and toilet paper and things like that and sell them at their at really their, in it within cafes so people could go and like get a latte and then buy uh one-stop shop i know which is so interesting to be like imagine if that like became a thing yeah. you know it's like a changing role of stores and yeah. bars and restaurants like how is that going to be different in the future yeah and then i read yeah. this really um really uh sweet expose not expose sweets um i don't know recounting of this about this teacher um mm-hmm. also in new york because also from yeah. the new york times you know the number one source of news <laughs> we love please sponsor us <laughs> Everything that's fit to print. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and the article is called How a Teacher Who Moonlights Delivering Beer Spends His Sundays. And it's basically mm-hmm. about this middle school teacher um, who is, his name is Kevin Bradford. And he is essentially a middle, he's a middle school math teacher, but he mm-hmm. also delivers um, beer. Um, he's a partner wow. and curator for Harlem Hops, a craft um, beer bar in central Harlem. And so he'll spend all week... Um, you know, teaching students online, mm-hmm. and then on Saturday is his day off, and then on Sunday he puts on a gloves and a mask, and he delivers beer to people all around the city who want beer. Um, wow. And then he talks a little bit about um, the the difficulty of teaching children online and absentee students, and how he has either he has parents who are you know healthcare workers or working all day, and so they can't be there to um, sure. you know monitor their children and make right, sure that right. they do this, and then also uh, teach. Uh, parents who um, aren't quite able to discipline their children and get them to be online and so he says that the the thing that he has to do is when a when a student doesn't show up he calls the parent Mm -hmm. and then the parent um um, will hopefully call back and and explain why the the student wasn't there and he said one time he called the parent and the parent said oh I'll have oh he's in the shower like oh my student is in the shower like (laughs) we'll call you back later and then nobody called back so he called back again and then the person just hung up on him so he's just he's saying it's he's finding it frustrating to teach the children that he was so used to teaching um and then on Sundays he delivers beer and I just like wow that's a really interesting (laughs) Lifestyle. What a lifestyle! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Huh. But yeah, but yeah, we'd love to hear about what you guys are drinking, yeah. what you guys are making, or going out to get, or anything like that. Yeah. Um, have you bought more alcohol since enjoying a good bottle of wine? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell I us if you make beer. Wine. Yes, please do follow up with us. We're on Instagram at One with the Prairie. Yeah. Oh, and we have to end we'd with our prairie pointers. Okay, so I'll start. <laughs> so my prairie pointer for this week, it's totally unrelated to the prairie life. This is just something that has made my life <laughs> better. <laughs> so <laughs> what I recently discovered is that on Udemy, is that how you say it? Or is it Udemy? Or is it Udemy? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I guess no it's idea. Udemy or Udemy. 
Okay, you Demi. Sorry, we're butchering it. <laughs> I'm you, you Demi. Um, I found a drawing class for ten dollars, so I've been doing this oh, online wait. drawing class, and that was really fun. Um, and they're half off right now, so they're pretty cheap. And I just like line do some line drawings, and I'm actually learning something because I've never really taken drawing classes, so I'm actually learning something. And my other Super one sick. is. It is an enjoyable time to just look at Airbnbs in other countries just for the fun. <laughs> uh, those, those are, are my prairie pad- pointers. pointers. What's yours, Sarah? Hmm. My prairie pointer is I have recently picked up this book called On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee. Oh. Um, and it's really interesting, and it goes all into like the science of behind anything that you want from the Maillard reaction or emulsifications and how to make different like aiolis or mayonnaises. They have one on beer. Um, so it's an interesting read. It's definitely dense, definitely (laughs) dense. But if you want to learn more about, you know, what goes in behind food and it's a good read. Wow. You know what I'm now realizing? Um, when Mm -hmm. you said the book on beer, which also I, okay. Also I've been reading a really good book too on, on cooking, but now I need to read that one. Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by Samin Ah, Nasra, who is, who is, well, not from Berkeley, but she went to UC Berkeley. So Fun worked stuff. in Japanese. Worked she's, Japanese. She's essentially a Berkeleyan. She's a Bay Area. Oh, she's so cool. But <laughs> what one thing I was thinking of is, you know, the biggest celebration of beer that there is in the world is Oktoberfest. And I and I, obviously Oktoberfest is, wouldn't be happening this year, I would imagine. Yeah, sad. I wonder wow. how I wonder if there are statistics on how many gallons of beer people drink at Oktoberfest in the time I'm that sure they are there. It'd be insane. Probably be insane. More than the what, the three and a half gallons that people drink a year back in 18 to 70. 18 oh, and another Prairie Pointer related to beer, because this is related to the podcast, is um, my family has recently gotten really into non-alcoholic beer, if you're thinking of <laughs> beer. <laughs> in, in the middle of the week or something, oh my, or like in the middle of the day, oh my gosh, it's, we found a really good brewing company, it's called Athletic Brewing Company, so uh-huh. Athletic Brewing Company and Deschute, Deschute for Mere Pond Pale Ale. Athletic Brewing Company has these really good beers that don't have alcohol. So if you're thinking of just, you just don't want the alcohol and you just want the taste of the beer, they're so mm-hmm. good. If you want to pop open a beer at like 1130 a.m. Or even 8 a.m. I mean, I do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're in the Hudson, Westchester Valley area, definitely try the Sloop. Yeah! Good oh stuff. Good stuff. What were some other beers that we drank while we were in quarantine together? Well, that's kind yeah. of it. We drank Corona. We drank Corona with lime. That was, a, that was yeah. Good. Lagunitas, definitely hazy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, there's so many Anyways. good ones. DM us with what beers you're drinking. We would love to try them out. All right. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> keep your um, right. keep your cows close to you. Um, stay interested in the prairie. Keep reading a uh, little house on the prairie. And hashtag bring the bottom back. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bye.